old school um hello and welcome to the reach out podcast i'm stupid and joining me always kirsty eaton how are you i'm good monday morning sun is shining got a fantastic we... guest on today all excited wonderful well tell us um who today's guest is Kirst. so today's guest is john barry waldron who um i found i'm trying to think of how i found out about you i think it was word of mouth and then I did a little bit of research and then I found out about the incredible podcast that you do yourself, which you're going to tell us more about today. So welcome. Is it John? John Barry? JB? Uh, you can we... call me whatever you like. Normally, if I'm in trouble, my mum calls me John Barry, but everybody else, just John. But... Just John. Lovely. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, John. No John, problem. Yeah, really, really glad to be here. Yeah. John, if you had like um, a kind of little sort of bio that would be a few lines you know yeah. should you have a wikipedia to give listeners a bit of a, a kind of insight and introduction to, to to who and what you do how would you how would you best sort of approach so I, do, I describe myself as a mental health nurse primarily that's my first job but uh secondary to that i did a podcast uh featuring some of the patients i work with so uh it's called on the ward and i suppose that's what i'm most known for is a is the podcast was featuring some of the patients i work with in a secure psychiatric hospital so that's where my main job takes place. And I think there's a huge amount of um, stigma, but also I'd say a bit of ignorance and people aren't really aware of what happens in psychiatric hospitals, except for what they see in Hollywood films, which is still the case now. So is that what led you to wanting to do the podcast? Was to exactly. I speak to friends and family and things like that. And they say, oh, my God, you know, how do you put up with having to put the straight jackets on and things like that? And I said, we don't do that anymore. And, you know, people, and I don't bl- I never blame people for having that um, image or that thought in their head because I don't think as mental health professionals we've been quick enough to like show what hospitals are really like I think we're very reluctant to kind of show you know for good reasons confidentiality and things like that and we want to you know everyone has the right to go to treatment and not be um remembered but also we also want to show people what's really like I think people have that like I said the notion in their head sometimes can stop people from coming forward if they think that that's what it's going to be like mm. let me start the, the podcast asking a uh, the uh, every guest the same question and mm. and if we said was to say to you the words mental health yeah what's the first thing you think about if i'm gonna be honest I, I think at the moment it's become a bit of a cliche so i think it's great so my line of work i would say i work primarily for people with mental illness so serious mental illness people have got really unwell and i think mental health is more like physical health like something that we all have and we all need to maintain but i think it's become this kind of thing where People just talk about it, but nobody seems to do anything about it. Does that make sense? So we're in a place now where I think everyone is told to talk, told to open up, but yet we still don't have the provisions available when people need help. What do you align that to? Government infrastructure, or like what? what, Where do you see that? Because obviously, um, for many many years now, you know, and it's a good thing, you know, people have been. hammered home with every celebrity on the planet telling you it's okay to talk and it's good to talk and and that's great but I I can't remember who it was Kirst that we had on maybe two or three episodes ago but it's more um about like signposting now as to we'll go here and 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 he's that he's that equipped to cope with you know huge amounts of people that then sort of you know get signposted and head over to sort of these organizations like what what do you align it to to sort of go back to the initial question do you see that as something that the government needs to focus on and 
A hundred percent. So I so there's two things going on. So one is that we're far more aware. So there's far more awareness now. People are aware if they've had issues and things like that, that they can come forward. But at the same time, we're reducing services. So over the course of the last 10 years, everything's gone down while people demand are going up. up. So demand is going up. Services are going down. It's just a recipe for disaster. But, but like I said, there is a sort of an element, I think, where we have these awareness campaigns, which are great. And I really do like I don't knock them at all because I think they are great that people talk. But then I think they use as like a way to get away from doing the hard stuff. So the hard stuff is putting money into the services, right? So you've got to put money into it. Like I, I know you had Alistair Campbell on last week and I listened and it was really interesting. But I disagreed with what he said. He said it does, doesn't take throwing money at it. I think we do need to throw money at it when you throw a lot more money at it. And we're just not putting this, the, the money and resources into it. Sorry, something knocked over there. I was, I was making such a profound point that my, uh, my cupboard fell over. Um <laughs> But no, I do. I think like, you know, you can talk, you can skirt around the edges and you can help a bit, but really, yeah, you just need more money. And we need more nurses, particularly. I mean, I think you might come on to it later about what's changed over the course of my career, if you like, or over the 10 years I've been in it, is that there just isn't enough staff, right? So there's just not enough nurses. Mm. We're down about, about a fifth of nurses. There's a fifth of nursing vacancies in the NHS. So there's just not enough nurses. And I think we kind of sometimes get blinded by the numbers. You're like, you know, 10,000 nurses down or 12,000 nurses down. But what does that mean like in reality? In reality, it means that people aren't going to be able to get the treatment that they want. So I suppose if you went to McDonald's and you're supposed to have 10 staff and you're two down, that's only eight staff. So everybody else is going to have to work extra hard to do the stuff um, to kind of stretch the analogy a bit. What tends to happen then is if you get 100 people in and they all want different burgers and different stuff, you're just going to make them the same thing. Mm. And I think that's what's happening with the NHS. Because they're stretched, they'll just go, right, everybody gets CBT. So that, you know, everybody can have a bit of CBT because we know it works for a lot of people. Everyone's individuals, right? And everybody's got different problems. But it's because they don't have the resources, they can't give the individualised stuff that they, they should be doing. But, I mean, to kind of to play devil's advocate, I sure. think, you know, what we do, you know, before we started to become a placement provider for counselling students and offering free counselling, yeah. we were a befriending service for years. Mm. Um, and one of the campaigns that we're running now is called Man Down. And the idea behind that is to increase awareness with everybody, you know, take 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 the onus of responsibility off of the person who's feeling suicidal mm. and pressuring them to talk about their problems. If we all became a bit more kind of suicide savvy. Mm. Oh, I like that. We'll fit okay. that in somewhere. It's alliteration um, as well. That's very good. It's very good. Yeah. Um, but to, to make others more kind of suicide aware mm. on some of the language and some of the kind of subtleties and what to pick up on for them to then have the confidence to be able to start that conversation and actually ask someone who they love and who they're mm. concerned about. Listen, I've noticed, you, you know, you're not right. You're not your normal self. What's going on? Are you thinking about taking your life? What's, you know, talk to me. Um, I think you know, it doesn't important. necessarily... Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't have to always go back to hospitals and to nurses. Yeah. It doesn't have to go yeah. back to a clinical approach. I think, mm. you know, the the catchphrase, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. Um, I think if we all take more of a take more of a responsibility towards our neighbours and our loved ones, maybe we wouldn't be so reliant on, um, you know, primary care services and statutory services. That's sure. just what I'm saying. No, I I completely agree with you. I think. To bring it back to the podcast, if you like, is part of it is to make people not so scared of serious mental illness and serious topics. So, as you said about suicide, I think with the 
a lot of the awareness campaigns, everybody's kind of quite happy to talk about anxiety and maybe low level depression. But when it gets to like serious stuff, so people have psychosis, I still think people are really cautious about talking to people with psychosis or what do I do if my friend is, you know, making strange claims and, and being paranoid and things like that. And so we're improving, we're switching the dial, but maybe we haven't got to that end of the scale. Mm. Yeah, no, I think so. Um, tell us a bit about your first experiences and how mm. you became to be a mental health nurse. So you started out living in Runwell Hospital, didn't you? That that's right. Uh, people get confused. I didn't. Act, I wasn't an inpatient, but I was. Um, <laughs> my, both my parents um, worked. They're both Irish. They came over from Ireland, and at the time, one of the perks was they would put you up in accommodation. But the accommodation was literally in the grounds of the hospital. You know, they had staff street essentially like full of staffing and, and so I was always around people with uh, mental health problems and you used to see them wandering you know about in the grounds and things and I always remember specifically my mum used to say she used to say at the bottom of our road there was like a mini roundabout and to the right was like the main road and to the left was the hospital and she'd all say go left you know because she'd much prefer me hanging around with people with mental health problems and the road which you know is really dangerous um so yeah you know, I was, that leads I was, to Wickford <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, only bad things can happen there. No, um, but uh, so I was—I was never really scared or intimidated. I guess would be the thing by people with mental health problems. Saw, saw them quite often, and saw people talking to themselves and, and hearing voices and responding to things that weren't there, and just treated that as like, well, that's obviously you know they're they're not very well, and and not to be scared of it is the thing. How old was you at this point? Uh, I was eight when I first came over, and we left that street when I was about sixteen, maybe seventeen. Uh, and unfortunately, they've knocked it now. I mean, that's progress right but they've kind of completely knocked Rumwell hospital altogether really there's only one small unit left there but it used to be i don't know if you remember it's Stuart. i don't know if you're old enough to I, remember. I do yeah yeah but well. but but even even for me like i go to school and say that's where i lived and i would get like oh my god that's where all the nutters are and that's where all the psychopaths are and, and you know so you would get them um, images and i i remember vividly people saying you know older people would say like that's where you get sent if you were bad you know you get sent to Rumwell hospital you know um and so I never had that impression. I never had that um, stigma, I guess, because I, I lived it and I knew that it wasn't true, you know. And the the, the experiences that your mum and dad had of yeah. both being mental health nurses, mm. did they come home with any kind of stories? Obviously, they decompressed together doing the same yeah, job. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and uh, quite often they take me there. So there'd, there'd be Christmas parties or you know some sort of parties and they'd take me on the wards. So be, I would just go on the wards and meet the patients and meet all the staff and... Uh, it was never kind of thought of a, they were never segregated. So I think that was the big difference. I think now it's kind of like, I understand why we do it, but we kind of segregate these people off to um, be kind of farmed away in like some sort of secure hospital. Whereas back then it was a lot more open, a lot more um, commonplace to go and see them, go and talk to people. Uh, yeah, but they, they did. They used to quite often talk about their experiences and things that happened to them on the wards. Um, you know, not all of them good. But at least then I suppose it prepared me, I guess, psychologically, in a weird way, for, for when I started. And so it was just always going to be a natural progression that you would then become uh, a mental health nurse yourself? Absolutely not. No, I completely kicked against it. <laughs> when I did, um, went off to university and did geography just to kind of um, escape it, I guess. Or just kind of, you know, I don't know, when you're young, you try and do the opposite of what your parents do, right? You try and get away from it. But then eventually, I, I think I left university and kind of fell into being a support worker. And even in that sense I was like well I'm not going to be here long so don't give me any projects to do because I'm not going to be staying very long and obviously 10 years later I was still there. <laughs> so, Gets but, under um, your skin doesn't it? It does it does. Well I mean to, to sort of bring it forward to to now did you and, and, and uh, 
I'm going to sort of ask you in, in, in a moment to sort of tell us about a, a sort of an average day for you yeah. now. Mm. But, and I know you said that you listened to the uh, Alistair Campbell episode, I think on there yes. when he was talking about his um, his, his brother's illness and, and yeah. in the mm. 80s and, you know, referencing Cuckoo's Nest and Nuthouse and Looney Bin and all of these, yeah. these sort of terminology that, that still exists you know, to, to certain generations, and I'm yes. sure you know that more than any of us. And mm. was the podcast something that you set up to sort of, you know, kind of a peek behind the curtain that, hey, it's, it's you know, change your perception of how you view these places? A hundred percent. So one of the, the main drivers, I guess, was, it, and again, like I said, I don't blame people for having their opinions because that's all they see. We had a, a, a disco, so the, the patients wanted to do a Halloween party, right? And uh, so, can I just re- say, my first time yeah. I ever went to Runwell, uh, yeah. I was 17 and I DJ'd a party uh, at Runwell. Well, there you go. Well, we needed you because when I rung in yeah. my new hospital, I rung, and to be fair, it's secure, so slightly different, but we rang around seven DJs in the local Essex area yeah. and they all knocked us back. They all said, No, no, no way. I'm not coming to the psychiatric hospital. No way. Yeah. And the guy who did come, uh, he came and he got to reception and when we get to reception, we give people these little kind of alarm things to pull, you know, if they get in trouble, we're in trouble on the wall, we pull the alarm. And he said, what? He said, oh, I didn't realise it was this. No way. And he left. So wow. there was no mu- there was no music for the uh, for the patient's Halloween party. We had to have like a little Bluetooth speaker. And I thought that's pure, um, again, I, I use the word ignorance, but maybe that's not the word, but people just being unaware of what the hospital was like. Um, so... Yeah, so they didn't have any music for the disco party. Interestingly, I, I retell this story a lot, but I, I told this story when I, uh, I was doing some radio show and the lady who was interviewing me said, oh, that's awful. But then she said, are they allowed to do Halloween parties? <laughs> and I went, I went what do you mean? And she went, well, won't they, you know, if they dress up, won't they get, you know, I don't know if she thought they'd get extra mad or they would, you know, lose their minds or, you know, she, again, innocently, she just thought, oh, I didn't think they'd be allowed to dress up. I had one lady ask me, um, what did she say? She said, oh, it's Strictly Come Dancing, that's on. I love Strictly. And I said, all right. She said, are they allowed to watch TV in there? And, and things, and I go, well, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, but again, <clears throat> not for any um, malice or anything like that. I think they just don't know. People just don't know. They've never been in them. But I think what we're going to find is, particularly with the, you know, probably COVID um, is going to affect a lot of people in a lot of ways. I think a lot more people are going to have a lot more experience of mental health units, either them or their family. And we need mm. to kind of break it down a bit because people are going to have to get used to them. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we'll get back to the podcast, but yes, tell us, uh, uh, you know, and I know I'm generalising by saying, tell us about an average day, but like, yes. you know, what is the average day for somebody who does what you do? Uh, well, varied, I would say, is one thing. But what I would say is I'm in kind of a period of transition. So where I used to work, I want to be vague enough that um, I don't want to get in trouble. But basically where I used to work was exceptionally busy and where I work now is not quite so busy. Um, but where I used to work, an average day would be, I, I vividly remember, you'd go through periods where you'd be exceptionally busy. So when I say busy on a mental health unit, it's meaning that there's a lot of patients trying to harm themselves, a lot of patients in distress. Sometimes they're trying to hurt other people. And I remember when we went through really busy patches, like really, you know, kind of traumatic periods, we'd have patients literally at seven o'clock. She'd so have the handover at seven o'clock. At 7.30, they'd be banging on the door. And then one of them would try and headbang. On, on the wall and you'd have to try and stop them. And this is literally the first first moment of my day I'm having to deal with that patient, trying to help them, maybe give them medication, maybe try and help them in some other way. 
Um, that would get you through to about nine o'clock. So this is like literally seven o'clock, nine o'clock, you're dealing with that patient. Nine o'clock, you've got to do medication. 10 o'clock, some of them might have ward rounds. That means you've got to speak to the doctor, talk about their treatment, their long-term treatment. In between that, I think I was saying to Kirsty, and I, you know, I don't know if you'll have a warning before this, but we get a lot of patients tying ligatures. That was like a really kind of um, common occurrence. So common occurrence would be someone would tie something around their neck and someone would have to go in, we'd have to cut it off. We'd have to help them and then, uh, you know, talk them down again, therapy, maybe talk to them, medication, all these kind of things. You're kind of, I, I would describe it as like we were like the A&E or like the emergency services of mm. mental health care. So it, it was more like we've got to keep these people um, safe. And there was lots of things we'd have to do to keep them safe. But in between that, so I'm making it sound really dramatic. And what I find very hard with the podcast is in the podcast, I'm trying to show people it's not probably as bad as you think. Does it make sense? Like the, 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 the environment is, you know, not as crazy and as the thing that you probably think in your mind, but also sometimes it does get really busy and sometimes there are really serious things that happen and you have to deal with them because the patients wouldn't be there if it wasn't um, very serious, the, the illness that they have. Uh, sorry, I, I've gone off on a rant there. So where was I? We're about 12 o'clock. Then we have lunch. Um, and then about one o'clock. So in between, there would be various different therapies going on. Sometimes the patients would be in a good place and they'd go to them. Sometimes they're not in a good place and they can't go to them. Uh, they would have often have visits. When they get well, they'd often have visits off the ward. So they'd go to town or they might go and visit their family. Um, again, bring it back to the podcast. We had a patient who went to visit his family. I can't remember where he lives. Up north somewhere, maybe Nottingham. So we drove miles. Um, and often when they go first, a member of staff would have to go with them just to keep them safe and, and keep everything monitored. And I remember we met someone they hadn't seen in ages because sometimes they're in hospital for a long time and uh, the guy said to him all right mate i haven't seen you in ages where you've been and he said oh i've been in a, i've been in prison and he didn't want to say he'd been in psychiatric hospital like you know and i asked him on the way back i said like you know why did you tell that guy you'd been in, in prison and he said oh you, you get less questions if you just say you know i've been in prison than if i've been in hospital so that's again another you know illustration of how the stigma and stuff it carries on and it does affect people like you know it does uh, affect them day to day um so sorry i'm not answering your question very well no 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 you are perfectly. A, day, you're, you're, a day in the life is per, like I'm, I'm perfectly. Perfectly. You, you've literally got to lunch and and and, and you've you know you, you've mentioned several things that uh i guess that the the, the person on the street would see as highly traumatic um, yeah. yeah yeah and yeah. and as much as you know that's your your skill set is to is to you know is to deal with that and work with that and help that hmm. You know, experiencing trauma like that, like how do you manage it when when you get home? How do you sort of deal with what you've had to, you know? Well, I guess like um, like all of us, I I I don't think I had it very well, you know, during the pandemic. I think everyone was really struggling. And so the normal things that I would use, like going out with friends, maybe having a drink, you know, going to cinema, exercise, whatever. When that was all cut away with um, COVID. That, that was very difficult, very exceptionally difficult, yeah. And I think, um, you like, you learn to talk. That helps a lot. I probably bore my wife endlessly talking about various different things. But also at work, we have um, psychologists and therapists there that we get the opportunity to speak to. Um, but I still, even, even with that, I think it does affect you. I think over time, you know, they say with them particularly type of wards, they say really should only be working there for you know a year 18 months max because of the trauma involved and 
But again, we've got shortage of nurses. There is no nurses available. So, you know, I was there for about three years, four years on, on this ward, which was too long. It, looking back now, you know, hindsight, I'm now working in a place where I don't have them sorts of incidents. Where I work now, I work kind of addiction um, uh, therapy, and it's a lot more therapeutic based. And the patients are not quite as, um, what's the word, serious, or th their problems are not as ingrained as, as where I was before. Um, so now I've, I've had that break and I look back on where I used to work and think, like you said, yeah, God, that was very traumatic and having yeah. to deal with that a lot. But I'm again, I'm making it sound probably more dramatic than it is because that's not every day. So one day that would happen. The next day they have a really good day where a patient might go out and see their family or might go and visit their kids they haven't seen in years. And that's like them sort of small moments are the ones that are going to get you through the three months of bad moments. Mm. Does that make sense? Just seeing Definitely, someone... Yeah. Who hasn't seen that? Like I said, you know, I, I saw people see mums and dads they hadn't seen for years. And another thing, again, I like to talk, so you'll have to. I don't know if you're if you've got a good editing or what. But um, another thing I think is I never blame anyone because mental illness is really um, difficult and it's sticky and it's horrible and things go wrong and and people do drop out of their lives and things like that. And I would never judge a family member for not visiting or, or losing contact because it is really difficult. I've I only see them maybe now when they're doing quite well, but I haven't seen them for the two years, you know, when they've been really abusive or they've been drinking or they've been trying to hurt themselves, you know, I only catch it at the end. And so I wouldn't blame any family member for being reserved about coming to visit, you know, and things like that. I think that's something we need to get across as well is that, you know, mental illness is really tough, tough for the people around the people that have got it and obviously tough for the person who has it, you know. Definitely. I mean, I was going to ask, you know, you were talking about, um, <clears throat> The, the headbanger you know when you yeah down, yes, when you're yes. given the example of the day yeah um and and for those that are you know continuously trying to ligature yeah um can you give it a, just a bit of a broad overview of you know these for the, for the most part mm -hmm. people aren't necessarily born this way no it's a lifetime of trauma mm -hmm. isn't it that, that yeah oh no 100 percent. yeah and i would say that the patients I deal with are the most extreme end, I would say, of, of the trauma. But, yeah, all of them would have had um, horrific uh, experiences when they're young. You know, to read through some of their histories is like, uh, you know, it's just it would break your heart. You know, it's, mm. it, it, some of it's almost Dickensian, the stuff that they went through. And um, and that would be the number one, like, fix. If you wanted to stop people getting into such mental trauma is stop abusing kids when they're young, you know. And I'd like to think we're getting better at it, but... I don't know if we are, you know, I think it might be getting worse. Yeah. But yeah, that would be that, you know, it, it, it's just simple. Just stop abusing kids and you would have far less problems when you get um, into older age. hundred percent. This is, I mean, someone said that to me when I first started working within mental health, that I think it was around about 85, 90% of all mental health issues, you know, particularly those, you know, towards the more severe yeah. are down to childhood experiences, adverse childhood experiences. Yeah. Um, I know I, I wouldn't doubt it I wouldn't doubt it, it and um and like I said it would seem simple to stop that but then you know you get into a whole uh society and social thing and and I think when you spoke to Alistair Campbell you talked about social prescribing and things like that mm. and I think that's so important that you know social services stretch police stretch every every aspect of like the the safety net for people is completely gone and um if we fix that, we'd solve so many problems, you know. It is. This We're is still going to have people with mental health problems. You know, that's going to, you're going to have people with mental health problems. That's going to happen, okay? It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, but we could, the extent of them, we could definitely change. And I think if we take it back to the community level and even mm. a family level, so <clears throat> you guys were both saying that 
um, you know, we've got all these awareness campaigns about it's important to talk, it's okay to talk, but mm. people don't have necessarily a mental health nurse to speak to or they won't go to their GP. You know, with what we do, we are actively advising people to just talk to anyone, talk to your pal, yeah. talk to your wife, talk to someone, call the Samaritans, you know, in order to avoid people escalating to the point where they do need something like a statutory service. Well, I, think, um, I think what you're doing is is really inspirational because the the things, the themes that come out of the podcast, the huge thing that comes out is they all talk about obviously medication helps and therapy helps and things like that. The one, the one thing that all the patients say is, the connections that they make in the hospital is the big thing. So the human connection, right? And so Samaritans is great, but if you can see someone in person, it makes a huge difference just to, you know, offload. And you just, I think the big thing that people miss, and like you said before, is that it doesn't have to be a huge in-depth, uh, right? You know, my father, when I was five, did you know, it doesn't have to be huge stuff. Like the thing that everybody missed during the pandemic was getting on the bus and saying, cheers, mate, or going to the, you know, the coffee shop and seeing the go, all right, yeah, nice weather um we miss that we miss that connection and i think during the podcast they all say that the, the human connection is the thing that helped them the most i mean this is why group therapy is so fantastic but i mean everyone that i ever worked with um you know if you try and proposition the idea of group therapy it's like no don't want to talk to anybody yeah. everyone else is a nutter i'm fine yes. um don't want to share my business don't want to air my dirty laundry in public mm. And you're like, just give it a go. Just give it a go. I'll go with you. I'll walk you there. I'll wait outside for the hour. I promise I'll be there when you come out of it. Just give it a go, please. And they come out and they're hooked. You know, yeah. it's such a fantastic space just to be amongst other people that have a shared experience. Like you say, you don't have to go <clears throat> to, to the nitty gritty of what happened. You can just say, my childhood was shit. Yeah. <clears throat> and at 12 years old, I ran away started dating someone who was like 16 got into drink got into drugs you know these like we kind of you know you can join the dots and put the pieces yeah. together yourself well, it's but like just a, having a, that shared experience is so comforting yeah well like a AA AA is one of the most popular things um and the reason it is because it works massive right? advocate you know, yeah for like 70 it. years and, and it still works just that being able to share the experience and go actually somebody else is also doing similar stuff to me, you know, and there's a huge part, particularly with addiction, about shame and, you know, and um, people get shamed and think nobody could possibly be as bad as me. You know, I'm the worst thing that's ever lived. And when you go to these meetings and you hear that other people are having similar experiences, that, yeah, it helps. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely. One of the things that, um, in regards to, you know, talking about human connection, hmm. I'm going to pull it back to the podcast now, because often, like, the podcast industry is something that I'm very much involved in, you know, yes. uh, uh, outside of this podcast as well. And and one of the things that I often sort of tell corporates that are looking to, to, to launch podcasts is like, you could sit in a meeting with somebody and uh, that you're trying to pitch for business or whatever for an hour and it will be a meeting. But mm. the minute you sit down with someone, and I'm sure you understand this as a podcaster, and put a microphone in front of them and say, tell me about your situation, mm -hmm. tell me about mm. The connection you get there is worth 30 business meetings. Like, because yeah. you get something when you put a microphone in front of somebody and you look at them and you ask them mm. to tell you all about themselves uh, and you listen. And, and I think there's so much positive stuff that can come from the, the kind of evolution and the boom in this, yeah. you know, this, this media, I think is fantastic. I mean, 
Oh, like, oh, do, oh, do you, do you oh, agree with that? I 100% agree with you. And look, without getting too Hollywood and too cliche, is when I first sat the first patient down, episode one, got him talking and he explained some of his story. And I recognised this is actually too big now. I can't not get this out because he's taken the time and he, he wanted to get his story out and he talked so like movingly. I was like, I have to get this out now. I, I can't keep it to myself because it's so important. And, um, and all of the patients were like, all the patients were like, we want to tell our story to help other people. It wasn't, it was never about like, I want to do this because I can show off that, you know, this, this, and this, it was more like, I want to put this out there. And mm. I think you're right. There's a huge thing about, we miss stuff now. Don't we? There's not much tangible stuff like a, a, a meaning where we're like, this is something that we are part of and we've done it and you can listen to it whenever you like, you know. And importantly as well, in if you look at music, TV, and, and certainly the, 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 the younger generations, their thumbs mm. are very rapid and their attention yeah. spans are getting shorter and shorter. I work at a, uh, a venue in Rayleigh, we mentioned mm. Rayleigh earlier before we press record, and, and witnessing the... The, the, the generation that are coming through now that turned 18 during lockdown that didn't have the experiences yeah. that perhaps mm. us three did turning 18 and being able to go to clubs and stuff like that. What I see now is when I play a record, they go really crazy for one minute. <laughs> and then, <coughs> and then yeah. they pull their telephones from their pocket mm. because their attention spans, and I'm generalizing massively here, you know, uh, uh, and it's changing. So to, to bring this back to podcasting, what I'm saying is in, you know, music that you hear now, they're hearing it on TikTok for, for, for 30 seconds. Um, and, you know, Netflix and, and, and so many things are getting shorter and shorter, more bite-sized. Mm. And I think that's why podcasting is so beautiful because it's long-form conversation. Mm. It's not being condensed down to, 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 you know, three minutes that, you know, you can stomach in your day. It's like, no, it, this is like, this is a beautiful distraction. You can hear somebody literally pour their, their, their life and soul into a conversation uninterrupted for 30 minutes, an hour, you know, however long. And I think that's a really positive and beautiful thing that, that, that podcasting offers. I, I completely agree with you. And I think, um, also, we need to be mindful of the, the impact it has on the person delivering the chat. Mm. So the patients, all of them spoke to me and they were all so grateful and so thankful that I took the time to record them. And then the thought that they, other people were listening to them, give them mm. such heart. You know, like I, I said, that guy who the first chap I met, every time I see him now, he goes, oh, John, he's in Rups, 10,000. Now he said 10,000 people listening. Mm. And, and he, uh, <clears throat> we had a tweet from... Um, Russell Brand, although Russell Brand's gone a bit off. <laughs> but anyway, before before that, he you know retweeted the podcast saying you know uh, uh, yeah man that's my jam. He listened to the podcast and he had printed this tweet out now and keeps it in his pocket. And every time I see him, he pulls out and goes, "Oh John, Aww. remember uh, Russell Brand? He he listened to the podcast, didn't he?" And I said, "Yeah, you know." To be fair, I would probably do that too. Yeah. So so just the, the sense it gives them like a sense of pride, you know, that mm. they've talked. And they've listened and that people are listening. That's the big thing, that people are actually listening to them speak. Because I think uh, a lot of their lives, they're kind of, um, I wouldn't say they're forgotten dismissed. about, but, but dismissed, a bit dismissed. And I think 100%. I said to you, Kirsty, when I, when I said to you, I think the the image of hospital particularly, so sometimes these guys are in hospital for months, years sometimes, but the image is that life stops. So you go mm. into hospital because you're mentally unwell, everything stops, and in two years' time when you're back out, you know, life starts up again. But it doesn't really work like that. They're still mm. doing stuff in there, you know, they're still volunteering mm. and making music, and obviously they're unwell, so 
periods of up and down, but they're doing stuff while they're in hospital as well. Life just hasn't ended because they're in hospital. What made you want to do the podcast? What made you think? What? Why? Why do you think it's important to get their opinions and their feedback of what it's like to be an inpatient? I guess, uh, as we broadly discussed before, that when I was younger, it was always about oh, the nutters, they're mental, they're lunatics. And it's always used as like a slur. And mm. if ever you watch any movie, Hollywood film, it's always like some evil psychopath murderer has got mental illness, you know. Uh, what's his name? Mike Myers escaped from psychiatric hospital, <laughs> you know. So they're always painted as the worst of the worst, probably even worse than criminals, I would say, is that, God, you don't want to be mad. You don't want to be like these people, you know. And no, I thought that Ratchet is the most terrifying, oh, yeah. to, 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 yeah. you know, film f- film bad person ever. Yes, Daddy. and look, and look, I, I one further cook in this is one of my favourite films, mm. but it was nearly fifty years ago now, yeah, you know, absolutely. and we still absolutely. we still have people now come and go. Well, I don't want to go to hospital. It's like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And I said no. It's the, kind of, we've moved on from that, um, and people are worried they're going to get lobotomized and all sorts of stuff. But um, and again, I don't blame people for having that image because that's all we've we've shown them. Um, but uh, I can't remember what I'm saying, but yeah, th- th- these evil characters or the worst characters are always the ones that are, have got some sort of mental health problem. And even, what was the latest one I watched? Um, just before I started the podcast, is it uh, Joker? You remember Joker, the movie Joker? Oh, I watched that for the first time a few weeks ago, yeah. yeah. And like a brilliant brilliant film, great, but he's portrayed in that as having a mental um, illness, like he has a key worker and things like that. And um, you've got probably the most evil genius <laughs> like in the world is portrayed as having... A mental health problem um so again they kind of get they definitely get the, the bad end of the stick so what was it like when you when you decided that you wanted to create a podcast that you wanted yeah. to get impatience views about it mm. when you first started asking patients mm. this is what i want to do what do you think would you be up mm. for it what was their response uh, overwhelmingly positive like really? i i was terrified so we have like a meeting where we go and uh, i think it's every every couple of months or every quarter they, they bring all the patients from various different regions and they all come and they will have this big meeting and I just presented it to them I said oh look I was thinking about you know maybe doing a podcast where people would talk about their story and things like that and they all like all of them said it's such a brilliant idea one of them was saying that she said her family won't come and visit her because they think it's like um silence of the lambs you know that movie silence of the lambs where everyone's wearing like a mask and they're in cages and things like that and she said oh if i could do the podcast or if they could hear something then maybe they wouldn't be scared to come and visit so i mean like had practical um implications as well as hopefully affecting society or whatever but it was more like if i can just give it to that person's parents then maybe they might be more willing to come and visit you know so take it on a really low level, really kind of just, that's what I wanted. Just wanted people who were interested could listen to it and go like, oh yeah, okay, maybe it's not as bad as I thought. On the counter flip to that, I realise now that obviously with um, cuts to services and things like that, some of the hospitals are becoming really uh, like um, overwhelming and things like that. So mm-hmm. I'd like to think it's not showing them to be perfect and it's not showing them to be as bad, maybe somewhere in the middle. You, you mentioned the impact and the, 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 the positive impact that it's had by people that have guested on the show. Like, yeah. How, oh, yeah. How, how have you found it? Oh, I love it. Like you were mentioned about what do I do uh, in terms of uh, like my own trauma. So obviously having to see these things and see, you know, deal with patients that are really unwell. For that period of my life, there was a just before COVID, you know, we were going on 
doing radio interviews and things like that and appearing on other podcasts, seeing people on Twitter and getting emails and things like that. That kept me going, you know, that that kind of stuff where you're like, oh, people are actually interested and people are listening. It does. It, it really makes a difference. It makes you proud and makes you like, well, yeah, I will go in tomorrow um, and try and do the best I can, you know. Um, so, yeah, it had a really positive impact on me. Obviously, then COVID happened and everything stopped. I think I can blame COVID for the... <laughs> So I almost said, like, you know, your trajectory is kind of going like this. So we had BBC Five Live had said they were going to come in and do a live broadcast from the hospital, you know, to to show off the podcast. And they were going to they'd send people down to do recce's and things like that. COVID happened. Everything stopped. And then it all kind of just disappeared. Um, and obviously, you know, it, that, that, that moment is gone. But, you know, I could see like a, a way where it could have elevated to something bigger than it was. Does that make sense? Mm. Kind, of, kind of And like, you know. Poor me. <laughs> like lockdown, there was lots more serious things happened than that. But you know, it was very sad that it was just unfortunate that uh, this huge, massive world event happened that affected my tiny little podcast. <laughs> so, what are what are some of the um, kind of standout examples that patients have given you of um, some of the some of the things they love about living on a ward? Uh, some of the positive so- takeaways. I'd say they, like I said to you before, the community is the big thing. So they've made friends and a lot of them are there for a long time together. They've made friends for life, you know, so they've made people that they know that they're going to keep with. And, you know, some I've had patients leave and go and set up and live with patients they've also been with. Does it make sense? So they go and they're going to get shared accommodation and things like that. Um, the problem with the ward is not the problem. Sorry. The good thing is that it's a very stable place and they feel safe when they're in there. And so coming home sometimes can be a bit traumatic and they don't want to leave. Precisely. Yeah. And I think that's a big thing we're missing. Again, like you talk about social prescribing is that when people leave hospital, you know, sometimes they're going back to where they came from and maybe not in the best kind of circumstances. So if you're in a hospital and you're, you know, you care for and you're being seen, you're safe and you go to maybe a bed sit where you're getting 60 quid a week, you might see your nurse once a month, you know, things are going to you know if that's where things are going to go wrong i think you've lost you know, all so, those social connections you've lost yeah. people that are keeping an eye out for you yes and i think that that's um that's a big thing we're missing is that the the leaving of hospital is kind of um again not for any fault of the patients and not really for any fault of the staff there's just there's not enough resources out there i mean some of the we're really busy on the wards in the community you know times by 10 so there's community nurses are having to have like 50 60 people on their caseload oh they're just not gonna be they're not gonna, be able to see them, right? we're gonna see them once a month you know you can't you just can't fit them in in the day um and so yeah so that's a big thing i think on the ward they they enjoyed the if you listen to the podcast they all talk about when when they feel like they're not being therapized that's when they enjoy it the most so when they go to like you know do music or they'll do sports or whatever and and while they're doing it they might say oh yeah you know i had a really difficult time with my dad and trouble and you know they'll talk that it will be therapy but they won't recognize it as therapy so like doing music and like we had a studio there where they were kind of making their own music and things like that and stuff used to come out in the music, but, um, but they wouldn't recognize it as therapy. Cause you know, if you sit someone down and go, right, we're going to have a talk here. You're going to tell me your problems. You know, it's very formal and people kind of close up a bit and think, mm, I don't know. But when you're like doing the random that, stuff. That is the magic of occupational therapy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and we, you know, we, I work with some really fantastic occupational therapists. Yeah. Even doing, you know, doing people's nails or their hair or whatever, but, you know, just to get them out of that zone. And then you'd be amazed. Just feeling like a human again, like someone who has value, taking pride in their appearance. Like, actually, I do matter. You say that, Kirst. We had um, a great example of that was we had um, 
uh, a, a, a fellow um, gen from Essex uh, called Stuart Roberts, who set up a, an amazing mm. organisation called Haircuts for Homeless, and mm. uh, and he's, he's 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 expanded it all over uh, all over the country now. And and he says it, it resonated a little bit with something he said earlier as well, John. And it was he said like sometimes these these people that are on the streets haven't spoken to anyone for a week or half a week and or, or whatever it is and and they come in and say, they probably haven't been touched for for weeks and he said and i sit there and i'm engaging with them and talking to them yeah. and touching their head and cutting their hair and yeah. incredibly and, intimate and, and, yeah and, he, and what he says really surreal is they'll walk down the street before they have a haircut and people generally sort of form their own you know low opinions of them a lot of the time just the simplicity of a haircut mm. makes people feel they look at them slightly different and and it, the value that that must bring you know mm. to, to feeling like part of society must be incredible and 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 and, and it is it's, it's something as, as as simple as a as a haircut to you know to... but but yeah it's a huge thing to them that's the, the big difference yeah. huge thing to them and sometimes i'd imagine with the haircuts and things like that, it's the inner pride that they feel so yeah. people might look at them the same, but they feel better. You know, they feel more confident and they're like, I've had a haircut, I'm ready for oh, action. And they've know. spoken to someone. Yeah. Uh, and, and and yeah, absolutely. And, and in regards to the podcast, and uh, I guess this is a strange question. It's like picking your favourite child. But if there's there's people that are, uh, are considering listening to the podcast mm. now, John, would mm. you say, look, go to episode one and start there? Or would yeah. you say, do you know what? This episode really encaptured everything that I set out to achieve with the podcast. It gives a really good insight into to what we wanted to do when we come up with this this idea. Uh, yeah. Where would you say right, well, should go to? Obviously, obviously, I'd say one, just so you can get a bit of a broad idea of what it's all about. That's now, where I, think, I started, yeah. I think I can't, and I'm terrible with this, but I should know. There's one episode, I think it's episode four or five, I can't remember. But the, the patient talking uh, talks about their experience, and he's kind of a... He's the, you know, a bit of a geezer, you know, gangster type person. But he said he got hit by a bus. So he got hit by a bus when he was uh, younger and it caused a profound brain injury in him. And he says it's the best thing that ever happened to him. And, and I asked him on the podcast, said, well, you know, what do you mean? And he said, well, I was going down a path, you know, where I was criminality and I was you know, carrying knives and things like that. And getting hit by a bus, I realised that I've got to rely on other people and that, you know, the path I was going was the wrong path. And that... Um, I mean, really, it's incredible to, to, to have someone with that story and end up in a psychiatric unit. So he had mental health problems as well as all the other stuff. Um, but without getting hit by the bus, he feels he wouldn't be um, be able to be where he is now. And and that to me was like, you know, a, a wow moment, I guess. We'll put the, uh, the, the, the the link to the podcast in the show notes for any um, for, for, for listeners now. So obviously, when you uh, finish this episode, go and... Uh check out and obviously subscribe to, to, to John's podcast and and I'd say subscribe to this podcast first and then subscribe <laughs> to, you know, afterwards. this one's very important um so are you not doing the podcast anymore John well it, we've taken hiatus I would say so as I said where I worked before was like a was what I was trying to get across was working in a secure hospital and I don't work in secure set anymore I work in kind of more uh as I said addiction services and and um people that are I suppose to broadly put it, to simplify it, the patients I've worked with before were sectioned, so very kind of unwell. The patients I've worked with now are not sectioned, so they're uh, involuntary patients. patients. Voluntary patients, precisely. Um, 
But uh, and you know, I could talk for for hours about some of the the problems that are going on. I was going to say, could you do a podcast in your new environment and get those kind of opinions and experiences? Potentially, potentially. I wonder. It's interesting because I, ironically, I think the people that are sectioned are more likely to talk than people who are not because maybe they might be going back to the. You know, they're probably going to be staying very long, so they might be going back to their families or back to their workplace, and there might be some trepidation. You know, because as we said at the start, people are, are far more willing to talk. But there are limits, you know. Sometimes people are like, mm, I, I, I'm happy to talk about having some sort of mental health problem. But when it's like I've been admitted to a hospital, people then still have that kind of. Mm, I don't, not everyone, no. Some mm. people are very, you know, open and honest. But some people are like, mm, that's something I want to keep for myself, and they have absolutely every right to do that, you know. And I think we need to definitely shift our um, our dial because we get a lot of patients who are worried that their employers might treat them differently, and they shouldn't. Then legally, they cannot treat differently for having a mental health problem but people still have that notion that mm, I don't know I mean uh, Kirsty, I think we talked about um when I met you before about has been a huge spike in um addiction cases with people working in the building industry like you know the um manual labor kind of trade and unfortunately Stu this is us because men we're still not very good at um expressing ourselves or talking and I think the building industry itself is kind of quite a male dominated um environment and uh, I, I think that's something we need to focus on is that that people are talking but maybe not the people we want to talk are not talking there yeah, is actually there's a there's a, a charity specifically set up for the uh, construction industry talking about male yes. suicide yeah, yeah i'll try and find the uh, the links we can put I, it in the show notes uh, up until about five years ago I, I, I was working as a project manager in the um building track right. yeah and you would any any sort of site meetings or any site accommodation there was there was kind of posters and such there from you know such organizations but i never saw anyone having conversations in and around no. how they were feeling the posters were there and it goes back to i guess what you were saying at the beginning we all we all know it's there and we all know that you know everybody's telling you it's all right to talk but are people actually doing it so do you mind do you mind if i ask you Stu? because uh, like i'm intrigued myself you know just i'm new to this kind of role but that um was there a huge drug problem in the industry or why is there such a huge you know drug and drink problem in that kind of industry um it, it's really strange as, as opposed to like other industries you know i don't know well my other industry is the nighttime economy <laughs> all right so you probably see it both sides but yeah yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but uh i don't know i don't know if it's frustration i don't yeah. know if it's um maybe uh, I, I found that a lot of the people that i work with in that industry um wanted to live a more glamorous life than what may be perceived as somebody that is working on a site and yeah. it's you know it's a very honest living it's a skilled living and and lots of people i work with had cars they couldn't afford mm. clothes they probably couldn't afford and that would be supplemented by in general cocaine yeah um and and to the point where there will be people finishing work at four o'clock and straight to the pub on a Tuesday night, three yeah. or four pints and a few lines of cocaine, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, after work on a, on a school night, which is problematic when it... Well, I, I wonder, like, uh, I think I think there's a few things going on, like, interesting what you're saying. So one, you're right about the, um, so the flash kind of lifestyle, but I think there's generally in building trade, there's a lot of cash and a lot of money flowing around, but it's only short-lived. So... You know, you might get a project for a couple of weeks and then the next week you don't get a project. You know what I mean? So it's like um, precarious work. 
that's one thing i guess also you don't need dbs checks right to work on a, on a building site so you may have some people that may have been involved in criminality and things like that and that's their kind of there is, there is regular that. drug testing on, on okay most, all right yeah, most yeah. big sites now there's, yeah there's, yeah there's, there's, there's regular drug testing i know you know multiple people to work on the railways you know overnight yeah. and stuff like yeah. that and they're, they're stringent drug testing and uh but i wonder uh, if it, and it, it does come back to a bit of a like you say, like a lad culture, like we're all going out. You come on, why aren't you going out? What, you know, and then before you know it, you kind of suck it into that um, thing. But uh, absolutely, you're right. I mean, I'm of the same age as you. That back in my day, you'd never talk about your feelings or like you were sad or anything like that. It just wouldn't it wouldn't come up. You know, you you would be uh, mortified to kind of express that. I, I don't think that lockdown has helped the, the oh, situation no. oh, yeah. in drugs either. Mm. Um, just you know, in my other life, like searching people now when 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 they arrive at, at whatever venue i'm at mm. you know I'm, I'm finding that the amount of of generally cocaine that yeah. uh, that you're finding on people is far far larger than what it yeah. was three four years ago uh, i think as, as we say in the in the industry that what happened was people had issues or problems covid and lockdown just turbocharged everything you know everybody was able yeah. to do whatever they were doing times 20, you know, because there was no um, boundaries. There was no going to work. You know, it was, it was very easy for people to get suckered into that yeah. um, lifestyle. And it just accentuated whatever was there. And I suppose that's the, the, the problem with addiction is that whatever boundary you have, you'll break it. Yeah. Right. So it's yeah. like, oh, well, I won't do it before six o'clock. You'll be doing it before six o'clock, you know. Yeah. I won't do it in front of the kids. You'll do it in front of the kids. You know, the, whatever boundary you set in place for yourself, eventually it will be knocked down. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Well, like I say, we'll put the, the, the show notes for the podcast um, so people can go and go and get stuck into it um, when they finish this. And, yeah. and and John, it's been a real delight to talk to you and, and, and give us an insight into, and hopefully, you know, clarified anybody's sort of misconceptions of, of, of what your walls would, would, would be like. And so, Absolutely. So, and I would say, I would, I would encourage people to come and have a look, you know, just come and volunteer, come and be a HCA. There's loads of jobs out there. People want to come mental health support workers, you know, we don't have the, the facilities and nursing as well. I'd, I'd strongly encourage anyone to be a mental health nurse. And if people were, were interested in doing that, where, where would you direct them? Uh, well, the NHS website, get all the vacancies there, come for any of them. And the one thing I would say, sometimes people start work and they go, I'm not really liking this place. This place is not for me. But there's hundreds of units, mental health units across the, the region of Essex and the UK. So don't stick. If you go in one place and this isn't for me, Maybe it's not for you. Try somewhere else. Mm. Wonderful. Thanks ever so much for coming on today, John. No, thank, thank you, John. Uh, it's we, been we an absolute it, yeah. joy. Thank you. Right. We're going to press stop, but don't go anywhere. Yeah. I won't go anywhere. I, I didn't want to mention 